you know, I had these airmen scattered around Afghanistan in like 16 different locations. And my, my thought process was I should go visit them. I'm their commander. I should support them. But then you kind of go, okay, am I going to actually do anything specific? You know, is it worth the personal risk to go outside the wire to visit all these, all these folks repeatedly? And about as long as it took to form that question, the answer was, of course. Good afternoon and welcome to the Polaris Hall podcast. My name is C1C Jack Calkins here with my NCO, C2C Jack Wachtel. We're here today with Lieutenant General Chris Miller. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. General Miller was a B1, B2 pilot, studied at International Relations at Oxford. Today we're going to talk about his time as a B2 wing commander for the 509th Bomb Wing. Talk about some other things, um, leadership and humility. It's going to be an awesome show. Stay tuned. It's finally going to get re-engined with more modern, more efficient engines. But this is, this is the eighth re-engining study the Air Force has done. And the reason that we always said, no, we're not going to do it, is because when you do the math, it's like, yes, it'll be more efficient, but we're going to retire it in only 15 <laughs> years, or 10 years, or 20 years. And then, you know, the payback won't be there. So somebody finally, with study number eight, said... Yeah, it's going to fly forever, so let's, <laughs> let's do it. Um, well, the B-52 isn't quite the B-2. No. And, sir, you were the <laughs> 509th Wing Commander. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. Um, my, my primary airplane from when I was a captain to, to when I was a colonel was the B-1. Uh, after being the the director of assignments for the Air Force, I was selected to command the B-2 wing. And I actually had a great transition into the wing. I, I had two months of overlap with my predecessor, which meant I could be a student uh, and truly transition to the airplane. So one of the things that I'm, I'm really happy about, um, not proud of because it was just sort of the way the assignment dynamics worked, I got to be the first B-2 wing commander who was actually fully qualified in the airplane because my predecessors had had to get it bedded down at Whiteman, had to support, uh, in, in the case of my immediate predecessor, uh, he had to support uh, operations in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, you know, he rightly put priority on his crews getting the training and, and op the operational flying they needed. But I had the luxury of learning how to fly the airplane, getting to know the the, the crew members and the maintainers and the rest of the base pretty well. Uh, and that was the start of a, a really a very special two-year command experience for me, uh, working with a, an amazing airplane, some tremendous people in the wing, uh, in all the functions, and then working with a very supportive community around Whiteman, uh, which was also a pretty unique. The 509th, that's the only B-2 wing correct correct um so it's kind of got the the national spotlight on it uh, being our premier bomber right yeah. now and really at the time yeah um, how did you ensure that integrity was one of your top focuses being in the national spotlight having that uh priority um to be the best bomb wing there is yeah that's a very complicated question actually um a couple of things that i think were important to me one is our Air Force has 
very clear core values. Integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. As the only B-2 wing uh, and a nuclear-capable bomber force uh, that had flown conventional combat recently, uh, I was fortunate in that everybody in that wing understood that the mission was important, all the missions, that the airplane was a national asset, and that what they did actually mattered. So motivating that wing was never, never too hard. But I think, you know, you can look at integrity from, from a bunch of different perspectives. You look at it as an individual, and whether you're a, a two-stripe airman, or a brand new second lieutenant, or a squadron commander, or a wing commander, you, you need to be conscious that how you come across, the decisions you make and the actions you take have to be right. They, you, you sign up to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. People depend on what you do and they trust you to, to be honest with them about what, what you do and what you say. Uh, and so from an individual level, you know, that, that doesn't change. It's kind of the same for everybody involved in that mission. From a command level, though, I think you have to also keep in mind that you set a tone for everybody around you. And the higher your level of command, the, the, the more people are affected by what you say and what you do. And my, my approach to leading that wing, and, and I, I sometimes almost feel guilty because it was a great group of people, who were already very motivated and very qualified. Uh, my approach was basically to trust my people, to keep the focus on getting the mission done right, to make sure that we, we kept in mind that it is a singular airplane, singular mission, and that what we needed to do our job needed to be articulated to the folks who resourced, resourced us and what they needed us to do needed to be well understood and faithfully executed. So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples, um, and there, there are lots of examples I could use. We, we got inspected a lot as a nuclear unit, so everything from weapons security and nuclear surety inspections to operational readiness inspections, both conventional and nuclear. Uh, one of the inspections we had we did really, really, really well. Uh, just about every graded area was better than the uh, ACC inspectors had seen. But one area was unsatisfactory, and in a nuclear inspection, depending on what, what a particular area is graded, that can sometimes roll up all the way to an overall grade. <laughs> so the good news is we got more excellence and outstandings than they had given in, in anybody's memory. Bad news is we were unsatisfactory. And this is where, from, from the beginning of preparation all the way through talking about that and getting reinspected, my focus was on our mission and not how we looked. You know, I, I, I believe and I have for a long time, I believe that when you prepare for an inspection, you know, people will say, well, this is your report card, or this is your, you know, this is, uh, this is kind of your, your ticket to further success. 
And you can't be completely unaware that how an individual or how a unit is perceived is affected by those things. But if you're focusing on the grade instead of focusing on the mission and, and doing it right, then you're focused on the wrong thing. And so the good news is I had a bunch of people who took, took the cue from me and the other commanders that we're going to do this stuff right because we're the world's experts in B-2 ops and we're just as good as anybody else in all the common Air Force functions. And we're, we're going to kick butt, not because we want a grade, because the, the grade, it, it's totally transient. We're going to kick butt because we want to be ready to do our job. And we want to be proud of being able to do that. And so as a result, you know, it was kind of a not fun discussion to tell folks, hey, you did great and we're unsat and you know we're going to have to get reevaluated here before the inspectors leave but what i was so proud of is that everybody in that wing understood what happened nobody indulged in finger pointing everybody kind of said you know we did we did what we were supposed to do well and this one little thing the way the inspection works then say la vie you know but but we're still good and i think that's kind of an organizational integrity uh, that I was very proud of because it showed that people were focused on doing the right things for the right reasons and not not trying to chase a perception. Um, and I think that that transfers to other examples I would give you. Um, as a commander, it's a combination of elevating performance and lifting others and living honorably when your people see you do the right things because they're what you should be doing. Um, I got calls in the middle of the night, everything from, you know, an, an inadvertent actuation of a fire alarm system in a hangar to uh, a young airman uh, dying because of a party that went wrong. Um, and as a commander, you can't just say, hey, you know, support group commander, handle this. You have to be, you have to be there supporting your subordinate commanders, not taking charge necessarily, not, not being there just to be there, but being there because you care and because it's important that your people know you care and then following up on it. So, you know, I, I will be honest, I, this particular incident I did not. I, I was pretty upset at the loss of that airman. Uh, it was avoidable. And uh, when his family came to the base, uh, as a person, I had no, I had, I knew it was going to be hard to meet with his dad. His dad was a Navy veteran who had been very proud of his son. Not only a Navy veteran, but a, a naturalized American citizen who was really proud of his son. And that was a hard conversation to have, but it's a conversation that I could not not have. And I think that not only was it good for me to be able to console him, but it was good for him and it was good for the folks around us to, to see that, you know, when we talk about being an Air Force family, 
we actually live it. Um, it, it it's just something you you got to do. So I think I think it really boils down to helping people build trust between each other, based both on professional competence and on being teammates that that reflect integrity, service, and excellence. Um, you, you, it's like, as a commander, you can't ever let people drop those things out of their cross-check. Right. Um, so a lot of being a commander, frankly, is not being the best pilot, the best, you know, technical specialist in what you do. It's helping the people around you and below you do what they do, having their backs, which sometimes means, uh, you know, correcting them, and sometimes it means just cheering for them. But, but, I, I, but it also also has to be on the basis of reality, you know. So it's like you you can't go tell somebody that dropping bad bombs is good. Right. But what you can say is, hey, I want you to succeed. Um, are you not getting enough training? Do we need to do more sim training? You know, did we have a problem in the bomb nav shop that, that led to, you know, a bad mission tape that, that you didn't catch? You know, what was, what was the problem? So let's focus on the problem and getting the mission done, not focus on recriminations or, or uh, you know, trying to make things look good when they're not good. Because I think people instinctively know when you have an honest conversation and everybody's got good intentions, then you can have a hard conversation and it's a good conversation. Yes, sir. But you can have a, a nice conversation that's actually a very bad conversation if people aren't, aren't calling, you know, light, light and dark, dark. We've had, I'm sure all three of us can say that we've all had both of those conversations. Absolutely. And can definitely say which one we prefer. Yeah. Sir, I'd like to just reiterate something you said before we... Uh, tackle the next topic. Um, you said focus on the mission, yeah. not the grade. Yeah. And I really think that's something that we could all take something out of. Just think of how great USAFA could be if it wasn't about the A you got in physics 110. Yeah. If it was about, you know, I understand yeah. how to do physics and how it will apply to my Air Force job in the future. Yeah. Let, let me, I, I want to just hit, hit that a little bit, Jack, because uh, a friend of mine approaches the subject matter that they're an expert in by by asking I wonder you know I wonder why this happens I wonder how this happens so you know in our courses and and I, I do vaguely remember being a cadet <laughs> um, the, the, the courses that I really liked the best all interested me and and, and like you said you know, if, if you think about what am I learning, you know, some things, I, I can't do an, an astro equation anymore. But 32 years after I had astro, when I was in my last job at the Pentagon, the concepts I learned in astro, the language that I learned to talk about orbits and space vehicles, those things were actually very useful to me. And so, you know, I, I do not remember what grade I got in Astro, but I do remember what I learned. Right. And, you know, if you go fly airplanes, 
everything from physics to arrow to double E, uh, even even mech, all that stuff actually helps you understand what you're doing. And and so it, it's like, what's my purpose? Well, my purpose is to learn the stuff I need to be a successful Air Force officer, a successful citizen, a successful person. Um, and that's, it just makes it so much easier than sweating the grade. I, I think a, a lot of cadets have a problem with looking past the short term yeah. when it comes to the grades. And obviously that's why we see like, like cheating scandals and stuff like that because it's hard to see the, the, the far into the future, the 30 years when you might need to recall that concept or yeah. use the same language and actually understand or like it, it's hard to see the shorthand how failing at something can be important for your overall learning. And yeah. I think that's much like building trust. It's not really like right in front of you and easy to kind of grasp, but it, it comes with experience and owning up to your mistakes and learning from them. It does, and, and I think as, as young leaders, which you guys are, um, one of the things that, that I, I kind of knew it, but I, I never really thought about it this way until I was a B-1 co-pilot, and my aircraft commander, uh, who is just a wonderful guy, I learned a ton from him, and two, two ways. One is, he was very honest. He had experience as a B-52 guy before before the B-1, and I did not have any experience in strategic air command or bomber ops. So I'm the newbie in that regard, and I hadn't flown in a crew airplane either. So he was, he was real upfront about the fact that he knew how to run a crew and to do SAC, strategic air command stuff, but he wasn't the world's best stick and rudder pilot. And so as we, as we did things together in the airplane, I watched him lead our four-person crew just brilliantly. Um, but when it came time to compete in the SAC bomb nav competition, I was a better refueler than he was. So he had his co-pilot refuel instead of him doing it because he was the aircraft commander. But the other thing he said after I did something particularly stupid in the airplane one day, <laughs> uh, and I was really down on myself, uh, he said, just remember, a failure is an event, not a person. And that's a really important thing to, you know, as, as you're leading your people, if, if they fail, you know, every now and then someone will fail so repeatedly, so spectacularly that they just, they're just not right for the organization. But even then, doesn't mean that person is a failure as a person. So there's a fine line between, um, you know, having standards and demanding a certain level of performance and helping people realize that they can and should overcome their mistakes because that is how we learn very often. I agree, sir. Um, we were talking before we came in here about you. Crazy as we were oh. for the podcast, yes, sir. Um, but one of the things we focused on was uh, you're a perfect example of what we consider a humble leader. Um, you're just the, the epitome of it. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how you achieved um, being able to lead with humility. Yeah, um, I think you have to start by recognizing that individuals never accomplish anything truly large or lasting by themselves. Um, 
one of the things when I when I got into the the B1 business, I was just amazed at that airplane, and it, it's just sort of a metaphor for for why we should be humble. Because first of all, as a as a member of a four person crew, you can't fly the airplane by yourself. I mean, it's not set up to do it. But you can't you can't accomplish that mission by yourself. It takes the other crew members. You can't get that airplane off the ground without the maintenance folks. The maintenance folks can't do what they do without the support team at a, at a base. And then when you look at the thousands of craftsmen, engineers, uh, physicists, what it took to build each one of those, and I got to pick up two of them at the factory, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. That's pretty awesome. I, I have actually climbed into an airplane that had seven hours on it, and that was just the acceptance test flights, and took off and flown that thing back to a base. It's like driving a new car. It was like driving <laughs> a new car. Um, I mean, what, what you just realize is that the stuff that we get involved in in the Air Force is, is way bigger than any of us. And so you may be the leader of a particular kind of a team, but you're inherently not worth as a human being any more or less than anybody else on that team. And even if you have leadership authority as a decision maker, um, you, can't, you can't make good decisions without good teammates. And I'll give you one other example. When, when I took the, the, uh, my last job as the Air Force A8 doing this programming stuff, I had a lot of experience as a planner, but not much experience as a programmer. And I had a group of uh, pretty senior colonels who who were division chiefs in the A8. And my predecessor had been a very experienced programmer. So as as we're going through my first couple of weeks in the job, I, I noticed that I really had to like poke to ask questions. And I got not very the full answers and I sort of realized and this is not a criticism of my predecessor it's just kind of the way it was they were used to a guy who really knew this business well and so they were also kind of used to having him argue with them and maybe correct them and you know they did not want their new boss to do the same thing so after a couple of weeks uh, we, we had a, uh, a meeting where I started out by saying because, by the way, my job at that time was going and articulating the Air Force position and kind of fighting for our, our plan with the other services and the Office of the Secretary of Defense folks who do resource allocation. So I was, I was basically representing the Air Force on things that I was not very deeply uh, well steeped in. in. Right. So I just told these guys, I said, hey, when, when we're having one of these meetings, I know very little. You know a lot. So I just need you to, to tell me everything you know, and, you know, that's, that's my starting point. And it just changed the whole dynamic because I was not trying to pretend that I knew the stuff they knew. And, and it was just a, a really good way to get them to, to be full teammates. And I think that you have to do that in almost any business you're in, you know. If, if you go from here to become a security forces uh, shift commander, you know, you're going to have young airmen who don't know a lot of stuff, but you're going to be around senior NCOs and other officers who do. And so we, 
we kind of go through life and our careers learning things. And I'm, I'm keenly aware of that because every job I had, I felt like I wasn't fully prepared for, which actually is not a bad thing. Because mm-hmm. if you go to a job you're absolutely fully prepared for, it's probably not a good job for you. Right. <laughs> so wanting to learn, caring about the people you're doing it with, listening to them, and uh, recognizing that that your your rank and your um, authority don't actually belong to you as much as they do to the organization. You know, we say at promotion ceremonies that you're promoted in recognition for your potential to uh, perform at the higher grade. You're not promoted because you're the world's greatest person, necessarily. You're promoted because the Air Force thinks you can fill this role. So fill the role. Recognize that that's what you're doing and take pride in it, but not at the expense of respecting the people around you. So that's a long answer, not very compact, but that's kind of how I look at it. I love it, sir. I mean, I think that's really something that we all could work on. Um, I know it's always a stereotypical um, second lieutenant that just comes out of the academy, like they're hot stuff because they just made it through here. And being able to remember where we really came from and that we're still all people and we're still all getting the Air Force mission done, um, I think is... Is something that we really need to focus on. And, you know, I think the other thing that that does is I think it inherently helps you avoid some problems that, that people sometimes run into. And that is if, if you approach others respectfully, then all the pathologies that we worry about that we get training on, everything from sexual assault to, to toxic leadership to... Uh, you know, failing to be respectful of, of a diverse workforce, failing to be inclusive. You know, if if what you're doing is taking people as they are, respecting them for what they bring to the table, respecting them inherently, and listening to them, then then a lot of those human relations problems just don't happen. And the other thing that I think as as leaders you need to recognize is that when you care about your people, they care about you, and we all have blind spots. And so when you make mistakes, which you inevitably will do, the people around you can either pile on and make it a lot worse for you, or they can cover your six and take care of you. And I, I have been very blessed throughout my career to have people who would you know help, help steer me in the right direction when I was not on the right track, and, and who would... Uh, you know, kind of work as a team with me. Um, it's a good feeling. Yes, sir. And it probably isn't too hard to work for you, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> with you. Based on my two years I've been working for well, you, or with you, sir. You, you, <laughs> and it, you can have high standards. Um, in fact, people like high standards. They just like everybody being on board to, to reach them. Yes, sir. Uh, and one, one more, I'll just take uh, 30 seconds more liberty. I think when you're talking about Air Force core values, it's pretty easy to, to identify what integrity looks like. People kind of have a gut sense of what integrity is, and, and generally they know why it matters. Service before self is a little harder to talk about because it's like, you know, do you give 20 hours a day uh, because other people need you? Well, there's a balance there. Um, 
and you know when we go to war sometimes service before self means ultimate sacrifice but but you can everybody kind of figures that out and they generally figure it out pretty well what i found as a commander is that having a discussion about what excellence looks like for the unit is really important and there is no single you know here's the answer it's it's a it's a continual discussion and sometimes you you know you take a down day because everybody's tired and sometimes you you work seven days in a row because we've got some important stuff to do but but everybody being kind of in the same conversation about what good looks like generally results in good looking pretty good that's a great saying good looking pretty good <laughs> yeah i love that sir yeah two more topics i okay. kind of want to touch on uh, before we wrap this up just kind of person to person uh weird biggest thing in the news now is russia ukraine yeah you're an ir guy yeah you know all over this stuff yeah what do you think um I think nations always jockey for power and influence. I mean, you know, there, there are lots of different schools of international relations. Power politics is, is one of them. Um, but the nation states tend to jockey for power and influence. I think what we're seeing is uh, a Europe that's been focused on the pandemic and that, that has traditionally wanted to turn inward and, and after the end of the Cold War not worry so much about external uh, challenges. I think we're seeing a U.S. that, that has been worried about the pandemic, about uh, climate change, about uh, social issues, and I think we see in China and Russia both uh, old-fashioned, autocratic, nationalistic leaders who see uh, effectively an opportunity as the West is worried about other things. So what I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows this besides Vladimir Putin and his, his uh, fellow leaders, is whether they really seriously intend to take Ukrainian territory by force or whether they're just looking to improve their, their uh, position in a bunch of different ways with regard to the West. I mean. There's a lot of military equipment on the border. I think it's entirely possible that they plan to do something offensive. Um, but it's a hard read. And I, I, think, I think the lesson for everybody uh, in our country who's looking at this is that there are still bad people. There are still people who will use force electively to accomplish objectives that the international community has said for a long time are not acceptable, i.e., a revision of territorial boundaries by force. Um, and I think we need to recognize that Russia uh, does not share our values and does not, uh, does not necessarily respect our uh, vision for European security. Uh, and it's pretty obvious from the last couple of days that Russia and China share some, some common objectives. So I think we are entering a pretty uh, delicate period, and as as folks associated with the U.S. military, it, it deserves some very serious study and attention. We talk about it in just about every class now. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's something else. Yeah.
I wonder if we'll graduate early. Just yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure we won't. But. You know, and, and here's here's something else interesting. Just from uh, discussions earlier today, we were looking at at Pearl Harbor at 9/11. Uh, the 9/11 Commission said that the the attacks that day were as much the result of a failure of imagination as anything else. Um, the fact that you know the U.S. national security community did not seriously think that. Uh, people would learn to fly airplanes so they could fly them into buildings and kill a lot of people. Right. And I think one of the lessons of history is that things happen that we don't fully anticipate and then we have to deal with it. Which is one of the reasons, incidentally, that I'm I'm a, uh, a strong supporter of the Homeland Defense Institute that the, the Academy and uh, NORAD NORTHCOM established because I think taking care of of our our homeland, our territory, our infrastructure, our people uh, is is increasingly important in in these days. We we've been in kind of a, uh, a post Cold War afterglow for a while, and I think that that's coming to a halt. It's kind of a random question. Do you guys ever talk about the grid at all? Uh, all the time. What are the leading thinkers saying about that? Uh, it's like a lot of things. There, there are different people who have different opinions on uh, severity, probability. You know, it's kind of like the EMP discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody, everybody generally agrees that an EMP event above the United States would be would be bad. There's a lot of dispute over how likely it is. Um, the same kind of applies to cyber attacks uh, on the grid and, and on other uh, critical infrastructure. People vary in, in whether they think uh, attacks are feasible on a large scale, whether the results of an attack would be long-lasting or short-lived, whether the deterrence calculus that an adversary might have uh, could be substantially affected or less affected. Uh, you know, and how do we do that? By counter-offensive cyber, by threatening kinetic action in, result, in, in response to a, a successful cyber attack? I mean, I, the, the short answer is, I think these are questions that are really important for us to think about as a nation uh, and, and something that we cannot afford to not have imagination about because... Um, Americans are not used to being attacked on their home plate. And we, I say we, you're the guys wearing the uniforms. <laughs> Those of us who used to wear the uniforms, I think all of us share a real uh, responsibility to help the nation think this through so that, so that we don't have uh, bad things happen on a large scale to our fellow countrymen. It would definitely be devastating, yeah. to say the least. Uh, so it's good to know that there are people out there thinking about it. There are. To wrap it up, sir, could you tell us your favorite war story, B1, B2? Oh, gosh. That's a tough one, Jack, because um, I've got a lot of good war stories. And it depends on your definition of a war story, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, the ironies of my Air Force career you know, I trained as a as a strategic nuclear bomber crew member. Obviously, never went to war in that role. Uh, trained hard in the B one for the conventional mission. 
starting in the mid-90s all the way up through 2001. I left the V1 to move to New York City three weeks before 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, three miles from where I was in Manhattan that day, I got to smell the smoke and walk home to Brooklyn. And I tried to convince the 8th Air Force commander at the time that I, since I was still not only qualified in the B-1, I was still current. And my successor as the ops group commander was not yet qualified to fly the airplane. I tried to convince him that I should go back, and he told me no. Oh, nice. Um, he, he also, a very wise, a very wise gentleman that I respect a lot, he said, there will be some things that you will be the right person to do in New York City. And actually there were. Uh, I got to go on national, local TV in New York, like eight million people, mm-hmm. uh, and explain the beginning of Enduring Freedom when we, when we uh, counterattacked in Afghanistan. Uh, and I got to spend a, a fair amount of time working with some of the, the civilians in that uh, assignment I was in, explaining those things. Uh, then I got to the B-2 after it was in active use in, uh, in the Middle East. So in 3,000, about 2,800 hours of bomber and trainer flying, never dropped a bomb in anchor. But from Whiteman, I got sent to Afghanistan for a year as the, uh, as the commander of what was then the only wing in Afghanistan. So my, my combat tour was on the ground supporting airmen who were doing all kinds of things, uh, everything from logistics support to the Afghans to provincial reconstruction teams to A-10, F-15E, uh, C-130, you name it. Um, and I guess, I guess this is this is not a classic, you know, flying war story. I could, I could tell you all kinds of fun stuff I did in the, <laughs> the other airplanes. My longest sortie was a 30-hour, uh, and, and I did have one. My longest B-2 sortie was about 23, and that was from Guam up to Alaska and then back to Whiteman. But I, I think one of the most interesting, you know, kind of back to character and leadership. After I'd been on the ground in Afghanistan for about two weeks, uh, some of my guys came and said, hey, we need you to go meet with an Afghan north of the base. Um, basically just to greet him, form a relationship, get his help in, in doing something. Uh, and then as I, so that was one request to go outside the wire. And that was kind of really mainstream responsibility of, of being the commander there. But the other, other part was they're risking their lives. Um, this was when the Taliban were kind of ramping things up after the initial uh, fairly quiet period. And so it's like, why would I not do that? And so I did, and it was great. Um, but it was just sort of ironic that my, my combat exposure was not in the airplanes that I trained to, to fight in. Right. It was mostly in Humvees and Army helicopters. Wow. You, you can't see it on the podcast, but I'm smiling because that's an awesome story, sir. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and it was, it was great. The, there were some amazing airmen doing some amazing things. And uh, it's funny, uh, just maybe three months ago, 
turns out that one of the folks working here at the academy, who I won't identify because he doesn't he doesn't know I'm talking about him, but uh, turns out he's now a civilian, but at the time he was an enlisted airman working in one of the provincial reconstruction teams, and he remembered me visiting, and we had a great talk about what they were doing there, and, and you know that phase of the conflict, and um, you know really one of the great joys of this business that you guys probably already know is you get to work with some really neat people doing some really hard things and you form some really strong bonds. Um, it, it's being in an organization that values integrity and values teamwork and, and values caring about each other is pretty amazing. It's pretty awesome. It really is. Joe Miller, thanks for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it, your time and your expertise and your advice. Thank you. You're very welcome, Jack. My pleasure.